Welcome back to another episode of Sepsis Voices with Dr. Ron. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Daniels, and today I'm joined by Dr. Shuan Seaman for an episode that explores the links between cancer and sepsis following World Cancer Day, which was on the 4th of February. And of course, this is even more poignant because of the recent news about King Charles III and his diagnosis of cancer. We quite rightly don't know much more about it at the moment, but of course, we wish him and the family well. Now, before we start, it's probably worth explaining for our listeners just how closely interlinked sepsis and cancer are. Now, the reality is we can't astound you for date with data because the data are quite poor. But when we think about the risk factors for sepsis, we can see that cancer and sepsis are intrinsically interlinked. Risk factors include indwelling advice, devices, which of course, many patients with cancer have, particularly during the active phases of treatment or during the uh, period approaching the end of life. People who are immunosuppressed are at increased risk. And of course, many anti-cancer therapies, be they chemotherapy or not, cause a degree of immunosuppression. People who are older are at also at increased risk, which includes some of our cancer population. And the reality is that we can't prevent and indeed shouldn't prevent every death from sepsis in patients with cancer, particularly in the final days of natural life. But sepsis is a preventable cause of death for many, and it could at the very least give them a valuable extra few weeks or even months with their families. So there's a lot of overlap between our work at UK Sepsis Trust and the work of organisations like Marie Curie, the UK's leading end-of-life charity. And of course, really important to reinforce that they're not exclusively a cancer charity, but this is a huge component of their caseload. Now, I'm an intensive care clinician by background, and when I started in intensive care as a consultant just over 20 years ago, it would have been pretty unusual, if not unheard of, for us to admit somebody being palliated with chemotherapy for an underlying cancer to intensive care, but it's now pretty normal. So an example would be someone who's being palliated with chemotherapy for breast cancer. They have a life expectancy that's measured in a small number of months, but we will of course now admit that patient to intensive care for at the very least the basics of therapy. We might not offer multi-organ support, but we will certainly offer drugs to support their circulation, a bit of help with their breathing. For that exact reason I described before, we just might get them home for a valuable few weeks or months with their families. And here to discuss this is Dr. Shuan Seaman. Now she's been a consultant in the inpatient unit at the Marie Curie Hospice in Cardiff in the Vale for a decade and has recently taken on the role of medical director at the hospice. She is heavily involved in teaching and training as well as having interests in quality improvement and digital innovation innovations. She's represented Marie Curie's medical team in their collaboration with us at the UK Sepsis Trust to develop a tool applicable for hospice patients with sepsis red flags. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. Oh, thank you, Ron. It's great to be here and um, have this opportunity to discuss this important topic. Yeah, it's work we've really enjoyed. And for listeners' benefit, um, UK Sepsis Trust and Marie Curie have collaborated quite recently on a tool for hospice patients um, with sepsis red flags and posters to support the awareness among staff. Uh, Shuan, would you be able to recap the work that was involved and, and sort of tell us how important it is for you and your colleagues to be invested in this to help support your patients? 
Yeah, I think, well, we at Marie Curie jumped at the opportunity to collaborate with the UK Sepsis Trust and yourself, Ron, um, to create this tool and um, and carry out this piece of work. And I think over a six month period, we worked as a task and finish group to look through the, the current non-palliative tool and think about how we could make it applicable really to our patient population um, with involvement from clinicians such as yourself and, and myself, but also um, the education team and um, quality improvement team at Marie Curie as well. Um, and I think what we what we're left with after that piece of work is now a, an usable tool that is easy to follow for um, for all disciplines, really working with um, patients at the end of life with cancer and indeed other terminal illnesses. Yeah, and we, we've had some really good, strong early feedback from, from the users of the tool, haven't we? And, and, and I think it's also really important to reinforce that this was very multi-professional. Um, this wasn't just medical professionals designing mm. this tool. This was people representing the end users of the tool. Uh, Shuan, can you speak to, about any specific challenges or, or special considerations that we need to have when it comes to identifying and managing sepsis in people receiving palliative care? Yeah, I think that there are lots of, of challenges. And I think for me, one of the, the hardest things is distinguishing sepsis from with the overlap between sepsis and disease progression. A lot of the features that we see when a patient with cancer or any other terminal illness is deteriorating can um can be can be quite similar and quite a bit of overlap with those features that we see in sepsis so for example a lot of patients with malignancy will have um, a neoplastic fever that isn't necessarily driven by sepsis it can be driven just by the inflammatory markers um uh, that are part of that sort of um cancer progression really and I think there are lots of other reversible causes that we see in cancer patients such as hypercalcemia or opioid toxicity that can affect cognition um, that can you know make us think well is this you know one of those sepsis red flags and is this sepsis or is this something else so I think there's a lot of um, of assessment and um, digging um, separation that's needed really to try and um, determine what we're dealing with and then I think there's the issue then around advanced care planning and ceilings of treatment. I think as a specialty in palliative medicine, we are um, quite good at having those conversations with patients and their families before they become septic or before they, they deteriorate further to try and determine what they want and what they don't want in different circumstances and try and identifying what they would like if they became septic is part of those sort of advanced care planning discussions um, because we know how difficult it is for a, a septic sick patient to be able to tell us what they'd want at that moment in time. Um, and I think historically, I know you mentioned in your introduction that the attitude of intensive care and high dependency units has certainly changed, but historically there was a real reluctance when people heard the word palliative or even heard the word cancer um, to to open up those intensive care um, units and beds to to our patients. So I think that is a definite shift that we've seen in, in, a, in the right direction. Um, but there is still that sort of um, historical uh, take that some um, clinicians in palliative care might still hold. 
Um, I think one of the other challenges for us is lots of the hospices, not all hospices, but lots of hospices around the UK are um, not based on acute sites. They are distant from the acute centres. And when we call for an ambulance to take a patient from the hospice, the acute sector, they are seen to be in a safe place, um, which will often um, bring them down that sort of triaging priority compared to somebody at, at home or on the roadside waiting for an ambulance. Um, so that, I think, is a, another real everyday challenge that we have to um, consider. And then not all hospices can deliver IV antibiotics. So, you know, that's another thing that we need to consider. We do here in the Marie Curie Hospice in Cardiff and the Vale, um, and, and I think the great majority of hospices now do, but not everywhere. And so your reaction, and we wanted to make sure that this tool worked, whatever the palliative care setting really, and considered that when we were working our way um, through the tool. Yeah, I, I think those are really, critical points erosion and i think it's not just clinicians is it who 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 need to have these conversations around people's expectations as they approach the end of life and of, of course it's not just about cancer it's about people with progressive neurological conditions progressive respiratory or, or cardiac condition it's anyone in whom a sort of approaching end of life can be predicted but we as families really need to talk to people around this and what the expectations mm. are and what the limitations of care are and you talked about um in fact you used the word reversible and and that was something that really came out of our conversations and something that went into the tool very early wasn't it, it do you think this patient might have a new and potentially reversible condition now yeah this brings up real challenges for clinicians doesn't it and you know have you got any advice for clinicians who are trying to navigate this delicate balance between providing aggressive interventions for sepsis in people who are approaching the end of life while ensuring their comfort and quality of life yeah and I think you know that's the, the term used there delicate balancing is is a, a very valid term for this because it's not easy at all and I would suggest that establishing each individual patient's baseline fitness and level of functioning immediately prior to the septic episode is probably the thing of greatest relevance in determining that, that right balance. Because somebody who has been deteriorating week by week over the last several weeks and is therefore probably in the final days or weeks of their life and then develops a septic episode, the approach to managing that patient is going to be very different to a patient with cancer who is at a very high functioning level and hasn't had a recent deterioration and then gets a, a sudden dip with, with a septic episode. And so I think it's it's impossible to, to plan how to manage uh, what a, a patient presenting with sepsis without taking into account and getting that quick collateral history from from relatives to understand what, what the baseline um change was here yeah that trajectory is really important isn't it and uh, you know that just a plea from me particularly to clinicians in in hospitals because often when people who have end-of-life conditions or life-limiting conditions come in they deteriorate, of course, out of hours at the weekend or the middle of the night. And, and it's really important, as you say, that we understand their functional capacity, independent with activities of daily living, frankly, isn't difficult to achieve in the days of online apps for shopping and so forth. What we're really interested in as those who are called to rescue these patients is 
how far can they walk? How can they climb a flight of stairs? You know, mm. are they able to get out of the house and, uh, and so forth? So some of these more nuanced, descriptive aspects of their functional capacity to me are really important. I've sort of mentioned this, that, that we need to get a lot better when somebody has a life-limiting diagnosis at planning for the future, at talking to them about their expectations. How, how would you say that clinicians can or should involve patients and their families in decision-making regarding, you know, in many cases, predictable eventualities such as the development of sepsis within the framework of their end-of-life care? Yeah, and I think that the key here is that that it happens early and that we don't wait until that scenario where you have a very sick septic patient where that decision needs to be made in in a matter of, of minutes. And so having the opportunity when people aren't under that stress to to weigh up the scenarios, to have an opportunity to go away and think about what their priorities of care are, where they would want to be, what you know whether where they are is more important than um prolonging life and for some people it is for some people avoiding hospital admission is the absolute critical um factor so but there's we just can't make any assumptions and we just have to have those open conversations dialogue it is not going to be um sorted in one 10 minute conversation it's something that needs to sort of be built on over time us as healthcare professionals providing information answering questions and then the patients with their families having time to to weigh up that information and then be able to articulate their wishes and then we can help them of course then when it comes to sort of sharing and documenting those wishes so that they are then seen and realized um if this scenario should should arise in the future and i think awareness of sepsis is a key bit of that really um and making people aware that just because they have one complex illness doesn't make them immune to developing another instance like sepsis do you think, Shun, we need to get better at sort of communicating that these are non-binary decisions, that we could, for example, say to an individual and their family, you know, look, we would recommend that it was appropriate to, for example, give you antibiotics or give you medicines to support your blood pressure, but you might not do well on a ventilator. To my perspective, that's not the public perception. They, they've there's a sort of perception that you're either for everything or for nothing so mm -hmm. I think the first question is can we get better at that and, and the second question is do you think the current pressures on the NHS provide us with enough time to have these sensible decisions yeah no we know don't we that your sort of um, your seven minute GP appointment isn't enough to to go into any of the depth needed to make these complex advanced decisions um, and and that's why I say it can't be done in, in one go, really. It needs a bit of information over, over separate time points. Um, and I think the I think in terms of the, the binary decisions, I, this is probably one of my the, the best bits from the respect form from my point of view, mm -hmm. that continuum and trying to get patients to map from the one extreme to the other what their priorities are is it to prolong life at all costs even if that means lots of invasive treatments and and hospital stays um or is it 
to absolutely prioritize comfort. And there isn't a yes or a no, it is a, a continuum. Um, and it's, but I think it does help clinicians when you've had that discussion with patients to understand, are they at one extreme or the other, or are they more in the middle and will be guided by the, the exact scenario and the, the medical recommendations at that time? Um, because I agree, it's not black and white and it's not a, a yes or no. And, and we still, even now, still having to make it very clear when we're having do not attempt resuscitation discussions with patients and their families, that this does not equate to no active treatment. We are purely talking about um, the stage where there is cardio and pulmonary arrest, that at that point, the chances of successful resuscitation are very low and we might not be recommending CPR in that scenario, but that does not mean that we wouldn't give intravenous hydration for dehydration or intravenous antibiotics and active management of, of sepsis. But we still need to um, make that really clear every time we have those conversations because there's, there is a real assumption that we are saying that we're not providing any active treatment when we have those resuscitation discussions. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely with you. And I think that the respect form is a huge step forward for non-clinical listeners, just to explain that this is a form that is increasingly used across the NHS and outside the NHS. And, and it really puts the patient front and center. It talks about what the patient would want, or if they can't communicate for themselves, what their, what their family believe the patient would want. And the clinician has to write in, you know, what therapies do I think would be appropriate for this person and what therapies might be futile for this person. And it's, it's made the whole process much clearer, particularly at times where their regular clinician isn't available, such as out of hours. But coming back to our tool with Marie Curie, um, this tool is available for download free from our website at sepsistrust.org. And when we first started Conversation Shoe, and we, we all agreed, in fact, both parties almost volunteered that we should make this tool available for organisations other than Marie Curie, rather than just within your nine hospices. Mm -hmm. How important to you and your team was that activity? What does this mean for other patients? Yeah, and I think as part of this process, Ron, we, you know, we looked at the literature, didn't we? What was already out there in terms of managing and identifying sepsis in the palliative care population? And fair to say there wasn't a huge amount out there um, focusing on this particular patient group. And so that was one of the reasons why we were so keen to develop a, a tool that was applicable to the, the hospice setting and patients. And therefore, there would be absolutely no reason as uh, an end of life charity that we would want to then keep that tool just to our nine hospices. You know, we want to be able to share that um, expertise that um, we had from the UK Sepsis Trust and um, from our own in-house team to, to develop a tool that healthcare professionals and of course, as a result of that, the patients being cared for in um, palliative care settings up and down the country could could benefit from that early recognition and um, structured approach to to management. And yeah, ab absolutely. It was really important to us. And if listeners are thinking, well, what about what about children's hospices? We also have tools available for children's hospices. They're, they're not on the website, but you can contact us. We've developed them with um, a hospice group uh, within the West Midlands called Acorns Hospices. So there is a template there. 
So we, we've talked about hospice settings and we, we reinforced at the beginning that, of course, Marie Curie doesn't only look after people approaching the end of life with cancer. But are there reasons why these tools might be particularly relevant in the care of people with cancer? It, you know, how does end of life care differ for people with cancer compared with other uh, life limiting illnesses in, in terms of sepsis and the risks? Yeah, and I think, you know, you gave a, a great summary of this in your introduction, Ron. I think there are definite um, risk factors in the cancer population that the fact that the cancer itself may well affect their immune system. But of course, the, the high level now of immunotherapy use in within oncology and, and cancer fields put these patients at increased risk of, of infection. We know that lots of the medications that we use for, for patients on top of the immunotherapy steroids and many chemotherapy agents will reduce their, um, their immune defense as well and increase their risk of infections. And of course the lines that lots of patients receiving chemotherapy will end up with intravenous um, indwelling lines um, and indwelling catheters um, and drainage lines. And therefore all these things when they come to play together and um, put this patient cohort at a higher risk of sepsis. And it's therefore important that, you know, that we as healthcare professionals are aware of that um, susceptibility to sepsis so that it is in the forefront of our minds when we're then seeing a patient um, developing any of those red flag signs. Yes, and and, and it's, it's difficult for us to to offer estimates of what proportion of cancer patients develop sepsis because of the complications with, with coding, isn't it? But I've certainly seen, and I, I don't know whether you, you'd like to comment, but particularly in um, people with breast cancer and lung cancer, that there is a very close temporal relationship between the chemotherapy and their demise. And, and you know, I just wonder whether in a number of those cases, this is a neutropenic sepsis type episode, but it's not being recorded. They're recorded as dying of cancer shortly after chemotherapy. Do you have any comment on that? Mm. Um, I, I would say that my feeling is that this will improve quite significantly um, in terms of accuracy of recording on medical certificate of cause of death. And the reason I say that is that obviously from April 2024, um, the medical examiner role, so that's um, independent scrutiny of cause of death, um, will be a statutory requirement across the UK. We've been using um, the medical examiners here at the hospice for the last three years. We were one of the, we were the first pilot site in Wales. And we will, when we report um, cancer as a cause of death, the first thing they do on their checklist is look at when the patient last had chemotherapy. And they will frequently come back to us and say, we note this patient last had chemotherapy a month ago. Do you think this played a part in their in their death? And of course, if we do think it does, that um, meets then the statutory requirement for a referral to the coroner to try and identify medication related um, causes of death um, it's it's rare that here in the hospice that I that we've then felt that actually yes the chemotherapy has played a part um, but I think it is as a whole and historically underreported but I'm, I'm confident with the addition of this statutory requirements and the third party um, assessments that we will get more accurate um, coding in the future. 
That, I mean, that's really good to hear. And our hospital where I work also has been piloting the, the ME role. And um, I was actually down there yesterday in the bereavement office uh, doing a death certificate um, for a patient, obviously. And um, uh, I was interested to note the medical examiner had put on the wall examples of good practice with death certification. And uh, the top one on the list was uh, 1A sepsis, 1B pneumonia. So I think I agree, things are definitely changing. It's not just in the cancer space. Historically, patients might just have been recorded as dying as, of, of pneumonia, even if they ended up in intensive care on, on multi-organ support. Mm. Now, Shuan, you, your role and your interests include quality improvement, but also application of technology and, and digital innovations. What opportunities do you think we have for such innovations to improve the reliability of sepsis recognition and management within end-of-life care settings? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, one of the simpler things is just the fact that more and more places are using electronic patient records, moving away from, from written records. So that just increases a chance of accurate coding, of, of having alerts built in, you know, lots of the electronic patient records in use in hospices, for example, will recognise if you put the observations into the system that day but there's a red flag there so whilst you would obviously hope that the that the training and that the tools that are in place would allow people to recognize that immediately having that sort of the, the assurance that the the computer system is also looking for those red flags and and alerting you is is a great way of sort of um of supporting sepsis management um, and again, there's just the with electronic patient records, there's the opportunity to put checklists in place to say, right, if you're saying my impression here is sepsis, that automatically you could get, you know, the sepsis six checklist pop up on the system so that you can be sure that nothing has been missed, even if somebody hasn't got the, the tool right in front of them, um, the poster there and then. Um, and then, of course, with that comes electronic prescribing to make sure that any prescriptions are timely, that they are um, with local micro um, micro guidelines taken into consideration. So I think it's turning a, a paper tool, I suppose, into a, a real time electronic um, trigger. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it. These things are so important, and and it's I think the context and the culture with which the, we introduce them is equally important, isn't it? It's these are not to replace clinical judgment; they're not to replace assessment of the patient. They're there as a almost a, a redundancy to remind us if we've either missed something or if we're not sure what to do, and they can be incredibly important in in that regard. Um, uh, lastly, Shum, what advice might you offer to uh, health professionals and caregivers who are you know, navigating these complexities. Is there, is there a sort of a single nugget of advice you can offer or, or, or a, a little list or what, what would be your take home points? Um, I think, well, I think one take home point has to be to, you know, please use the tool. Um, they, were, they were hoping the tool will support care and support healthcare professionals and caregivers to, to feel confident in, in identifying and initiating treatment for, for sepsis. Um, 
And there's lots of e-learning around as well. Marie Curie have certainly produced um, e-learning associated with the tools. So if you have access to that, um, consider completing that because that'll give you an extra depth that, you know, a podcast like this um, can't cover everything. Um, and I think then my, my number one take home point would have to be to ensure that all treatment decisions are individualized. We can't make blanket decisions. We can't say, oh, all palliative care patients with this diagnosis, this is what you do. No, it has to be, you know, what is right for that individual patient and their family. And you can only do that through having the time and conversations to, to allow their wishes to be um, clearly taken into account. Absolutely. And, and if any listeners, you know, are caring for advocating for or love somebody or all three who um, has a diagnosis of cancer uh, as a life limiting condition, um, there are resources available. And just one of those is our support nurses at the UK Sepsis Trust. They'd be very comfortable talking about what can be done with high dependency and intensive care in a life-ending situation and, and what might not be appropriate. So those services are available. Uh, Shivan, uh, thank you so much for your expert insights and time. It, it, you know, it's a really delicate area, but, it, but I think as we've agreed, it's an area we're getting a lot, lot better at talking about and managing including with acute interventions as health professionals. We're getting a lot, lot better at individualizing care, but there's a long, long way to go. That is all we've got time for today, but please don't forget you can access the tools and posters we've spoken about in this episode via our website at sepsistrust.org. Thank you again. Thank you.